0: For our last session, I want you to look in your Bibles at Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and to thank Jeff and Terry and others in this church for really a wonderful thing, as Jeff was just saying, getting so many of us together from different places to be encouraged in the gospel as men who would seek to live it in our families, in our churches, in our places of work. And as we've moved forward, I recognize there are challenges to that. Different kinds, as even in our off moments, uh, we've talked as men to men about family struggles and addictive issues and issues of just struggle that are real, but the gospel's real too. And as we recognize that, we say, How does this grace move to power? That's really the last thing I want to address with you. In our first session, I talked about the the wonder of grace, that it is really good beyond our reckoning, that God would be so gracious to those who are useless, maybe even in their own eyes. And in the second session, talking about if grace is so good, how does it actually lead to godliness? Because of the security we have by virtue of grace and because of the ability we have by virtue of grace. But I ended that last session by saying, if we have security in Christ and we have ability by Christ... What will cause us to act upon it so that we would actually move forward in the Christian life with greater godliness because of grace? And that really is the subject that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Colossians chapter 3, extolling the wonders of grace, many dimensions being expressed, and then coming with one of the strongest imperatives anywhere in the Bible, saying if grace is so great, how does it impel, compel? the godly life, because we now have motivation to live for God. This is how the apostle says it. Colossians 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. A few of, the, of you in the room may know the name Randy Neighbors. Randy Neighbors is a, a long-term pastor in the inner city of Chattanooga. And because he has served across four decades in that inner city setting, uh, he has not made a lot of money in his life. It's not that kind of setting. He has lived sacrificially, worked sacrificially for the sake of others. But also, just to make ends meet and also to be in service to his country, one of the ways he's maintained that ministry through so many years is he's also been a reserve army chaplain. Now, if you think across the last four decades of America's history, you know that to be a reserve army chaplain means he has been deployed numerous times in America's conflicts. And the the consequence of being both a pastor and one so long engaged in the military is he says he's often approached by young people who are wondering about their own future, whether they should commit to a career in the military. And so as a pastor advising those who are thinking about a military career. He says he just has a kind of a standard question. He asks those who are thinking about going into the military. Here's his question. He says, Would you be willing to die for your country? And he says, surprisingly, there is rarely hesitation in answering that question. Almost everybody says, Yeah, I think so. I think I would be willing to die for my country. So Randy says he always asks a follow-up question. Would you be willing to kill for your country? And he says that question causes people to pause. Would I be willing to kill for my country? The Apostle Paul is asking a question that is similar, but of even greater depth. He says, would you be willing to kill for your Savior? But the object of your killing is you. Would you be willing to kill you for your Savior? After all, you know the great imperative And the difficult one of verse 5 is simply this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The theologians from the Puritan times forward call this the great passage on the mortification of the flesh. Would you, so moved of the understanding of God's grace toward you and for you and in you, be willing now to act... So as to put to death in you whatever is inconsistent with the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that's a tough question. And so before he gets to this imperative, the apostle begins to spell out the indicatives. Who you are. That would give you, as it were, the motivation to fulfill the great imperative. And the indicatives, the statements of who you are in Christ, begin with really wonderful words. Verse 1 of chapter 3 if then you have been raised with Christ. Now, raised with Christ, I hope you recognize that's just resurrection language. And the apostle is stating it as something already applicable to those to whom he's writing. If then you have been raised with Christ, then consider these things. But how could it possibly be that the apostle is speaking to people who are at Colossae as though they have already been raised? I mean, in order to be raised, you have to have died, Where is the death that has already occurred? Again, you have to let your eyes move a bit backward into the narrative to see where the apostle is explaining this concept of dying. But it's going to be familiar to you with what we discussed previously from Romans. If you look at chapter 2 of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 12, the apostle is describing Christians as those having been buried with him in baptism in which he says you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead now remember we said before if you were a first century Jew or Gentile you would recognize that by your baptism you were making a public declaration to the world past loyalty is dead past life behind me that's dead I'm now identifying with the one who was raised from the dead. And because you are united to him, the apostle says, since you have been raised through your baptism, identifying a past death and a new life since you have been raised with him, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, it's all familiar language to us, but I want you to think of the wonder of it. The apostle is saying that you are, if you're united to Christ, he's at the right hand of God, so you must be at the right hand of God. If you're with him, that place of privilege and affection, seated at the right hand of God, is yours. Now, I I don't want to move past it so quickly that we don't recognize the impact of what that means. If you're with him, and he is seated at the right hand of God... The position of privilege and affection. If you're with him, then you are also at the right hand of God. No, I'm just right here. Well, I know that, but biblically, remember Ephesians two already seated where in heaven. already there, and and we're trying to make sense of this this spiritual reality of the already being so definite by virtue of our union with Christ that that the apostle is willing to look forward to the heavenly position that we shall have and say, because he's already there and you're united to him, you're already there. And and that begins to make sense as you think logically what that theological meaning would have for you. Have you ever heard somebody say, wouldn't it be great if God were like Jesus? (laughs) Well, actually, (laughs) he is. And you you have you. wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if God were to love me the way he loves Jesus, and you should say, he does. he does, you are united to him, and if he is at the right hand of God, so are you. As, as impossible as it may seem, because you are united to him, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And and the reason for that is not just in the sense of you're being at the right hand of God, but the word that we move quickly past, the verb, is because he is seated at the right hand of God, and therefore, you are seated at the right hand of God. Now, the importance of that terminology escapes us because we're not first century Jews. But if you really want to capture what it would mean to have the, the privilege and the wonder of being seated at the right hand of God. Again, look in your Bibles to see where that language is further explained. The book of Hebrews. Okay? Book of Hebrews, 10th chapter. Book of Hebrews, 10th chapter. And verse 11. And the importance of being seated at the right hand of God is explained to us in Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Describing the practices of the Old Testament temple, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10:11, you there? Hebrews 10:11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. See the language again? Seated at the right hand. Why is that so important? Because every day for a thousand years plus more, every priest stands performing his religious duty. What was the religious duty that the priest is doing? Now, just just think with me what you already know. Some of you, just, just think what you know about, for instance, a Passover service. Right, where every family would offer a lamb and gather around the Passover meal to celebrate God's release from slavery. And it it kind of sounds sweet. Family gathering around a slain lamb. Have any of you ever traveled in cultures where sacrifices are still made? I have. I have been in Dakar at the time of a Muslim holy day, when every family slaughters a goat in sacrifice, which literally means in a major city like that, hundreds of thousands of families are on a single night slaying a goat and sacrificing it, as would have been the case in ancient Israel when there are millions of people and hundreds of thousands of families on a single night sacrificing a lamb. Do you know what that's like? When you are in Dakar on the night of sacrifice, the blood of all the animals begins to fill the sewers and the ditches. And the offal is put into the ditches and begins to stink in the air. The, the smoke begins to fill the sky as hundreds of thousands of families are offering their sacrifices. And this is happening in ancient Israel. Every year, for a thousand years, plus more, but of course that's just the individual sacrifice in the family. This was the only sacrifice that was being made, an annual sacrifice. You may remember that at the temple there were also to be the seasonal sacrifices of first fruits and firstlings. Every season, at harvest and birth season, there were the sacrifices for a thousand years plus more. And by the way, it wasn't just seasonally. Every new moon, every month, there were also to be these monthly sacrifices. Every month of every year of every season for a thousand years plus more. And by the way, it wasn't just monthly sacrifices. There were also supposed to be weekly sacrifices because there was to be a Sabbath sacrifice for the sins of the people the high priest and the priest themselves made sacrifices for the people by the way it wasn't just on the Sabbath it was the Sabbath morning and what the Sabbath evening and by the way even though this went on weekly and monthly and seasonally for a thousand years plus more it wasn't just to happen weekly because every day There was to be a morning and an evening sacrifice every day of every week, of every month, of every season for a thousand years plus more. And those were just the ordered sacrifices for the people in general. You had as an individual to bring sacrifices as well for the sins you had knowingly committed. The sins of commission... And omission that you knew also required sacrifices daily in addition to the morning and the evening sacrifices that were offered every week of every month of every year. And by the way, these were just for the sins that you knew about. You were also to bring sacrifices for the sin that you did not know about but had undoubtedly committed. And this was to be done every day of every week of every month of every season of every year for a thousand years plus more in the temple of of the Holy God, we have descriptions in the Bible of every component we know what the walls were made of we know about the seven branch candlestick we know about the the showbread and the labor for purification We know what the priest robes were we even know what the tassels on the priest 's robes were made for, but there is one Article of the clo- one article of furniture that is never described in the Old Testament temple. What is it? What article of furniture is never described? Chair. Why no chair? Because every day every priest stands and performs his religious duty because every day there were so many sacrifices to make and every week and every month and every year for a thousand years plus more until one lamb went to a hill called Calvary and offered himself and on that day the veil between the Holy of Holies and the people of God was split from where? From top to bottom and God made a way to himself and we could stand in the grace whereby with we had been saved and the sacrificing was done and for the first time in a thousand years plus more the priest did what sat down which meant the long night of wrestling and striving to say when is it going to be enough? When is God going to be happy? When, when can I know that I will be forgiven? It's done. Jesus said it is finished. finished. You are not wondering anymore. How much do I have to do? When will it be okay? When will God be satisfied? How much more do I have to give? He says it's done. He sat down. And where do you sit? The right At the right hand of God with Him. I'm not wrestling anymore. I'm not racing to see when am I going to make it okay, God. When will you finally be happy? He says, by faith in my son, you sit down. And you're at rest at the right hand of the Father God who loves you as much as he loves his own child. You have great grace that is yours. And you are seated at the right hand of God who raised you with Christ to his right hand. And the apostle is just beginning. What other grace is ours? Verse 3, he says this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Not just united to Christ, but if you are united to Him, that means, as we've seen already today, the identity that's His becomes yours. So that you are hidden with Christ In God and and the wrath that we're told about in verse 6 that is coming upon the ungodly that wrath will no longer come upon you because you are hidden with Christ in the purpose and the identity of God that he intends for you and that that reality is so great that we are to take comfort not just by the fact that we are now somehow in God's affection but we are not to lose it because we are hidden even from the consequences of our own sin in the reality of the righteousness of Christ that now covers us. My uh, youngest daughter is uh, our tag-along child. That is, we had three older and then one that came a little bit later. And uh, that particular daughter, our, our Mac daughter, you know what Mac means? Middle-aged crazy. Um, our Mac daughter, you know, we sometimes say, we're just tired, you know, and we, we just have to find ways to keep pouring ourselves into this last daughter and, and care for her as precious as all the others, and, and one of the ways that I keep connecting, even with this high school daughter, is she and I have a game that we play at dinnertime, it is known as napkin war. Now, the way this game is played is this. I wait until she acts like she's not looking, right? And it's toward the end of the meal. I will wad up my napkin in my lap, and as she turns away, I'll get her. And when I throw my napkin, the war is on, right? She will pick up that napkin or wad up her own, and it goes back, and we are back. Let me tell you something. I always win because I'm a better shot, So my daughter has discovered a way of getting protection in the napkin war and this is what she'll do. She will get up out of her chair and she will go and she will hide behind her mother. (laughs) Because I won't throw at her mother. She's hidden in the goodness of the reality of her mother's care. What you and I are being told is despite the sin that we know is ours, the wrath of God will not come upon us because we are with Christ in glory, united to Him so much that we are hidden with Christ and God and the wrath of God shall not come upon us. We are safe as well as rested by the grace that He provides. All of that is established in what God has already done in our behalf by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But that is not the end of the story. If you move forward into verse 4, you're also moving forward in history. For there the apostle says this, when Christ, who is your life, now, you know, I just almost want to stop there and spend about 30 minutes just meditating on that one phrase, Christ, who is your life. Let me just capture that. He's who I am. God God looks at me and sees him. His identity, he's my life now. I don't stand on my righteousness. My sin does not witness against me. Christ is my life. And having said that, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, we don't exactly know what that means. That when Christ appears, that we will be with Him in glory. I mean, even an apostle, you know, trying to capture what that meant, that when Christ, to whom we are united, appears in all of His glory, that we will be with Him. That, remember, John says, what we shall be has not been made known. But we know this. When He appears, we'll be what? Like Him. Like Him. Now, I don't know what you think about when the trump shall sound and Christ shall come on the clouds of glory. You know what what kind of glorious image you think of. But it's amazing to think that when he appears, we will be like him. we're, We're already rested and we're already loved and we're already secure. But more than that we are being prepared for a glory beyond our imagining that is to be ours, not by virtue of our accomplishment, but by faith in His accomplishment. And, and, and trying to see what that means, C.S. Lewis, in, in that amazing sermon called The Weight of Glory, just, just tried to make us feel it by saying it this way. Because when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. What that means, said Lewis, was this. The dullest... Most uninteresting Christian you know. Now don't think of anybody in particular, okay? (laughs) The dullest, most uninteresting Christian you know. If you could see him now, in the estate he shall be when Christ appears, you would be tempted to fall down and worship him. All right, let's do it, okay? You ready for the exercise? Now, think of the person right next to you right now. Now, don't look at him. It'll be embarrassing, okay? (laughs) If you could see that person now in the estate they shall be when Christ appears, you would be tempted to bow down and worship Him. (laughs) That's the glory that is being promised to the people of God who day after day only see their weakness and frailty and sin. And God is saying, But I see Jesus in you, and you're mine, and the glory of the Lord shall be yours. And and the desire to capture these grace realities that you're rested and secure and do for glory is meant to actually give us such an understanding of our status that that we're willing to hear now the imperatives that come as a consequence of the grace that is already ours. Those, those imperatives start early. Right there in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So you're already seated with Him in glory. So you know, don't be after the things of the earth, but, but seek the things that are above. Now, now this particular verb in the Greek is, is more the verb of consider. Kind of like, like, think about this. You know, like just kind of get your mind going that way. But by the time you get to verse 2, it's much stronger. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. The various translators will translate this as, focus on this. One even says, crave an understanding of this as though this is, this is the Apostle Paul speaking with an intensity of language, saying, I just don't want this cognitive in your mind that somehow you are raised with Christ, you're secure in him. I want this to be your focus. I want this to grab you. I want this around your neck. I want this around your heart. I want this to grip you. You focus on this. You are Christ's own child, secure forever. and coming, I mean, you focus on this. And when you focus on that, when that becomes the reality of God knew the worst about you but saved you by the shed blood of His Son and now glory awaits you, already you're secure in Him. It's supposed to do something to us. It's supposed to grab our hearts so that we feel deeply the reality of grace that now becomes the motivation for our lives. I I, I couldn't help but think of it you know when when the big storm hit the Northeast this last year, and again you saw you know, the helicopters come and taking people out of the mire and all those images, and I couldn't help but think of that that one interview that I saw in Katrina. Just just has frozen you know in my mind the reality of people who know they've been saved. Here was here was a man who was being interviewed by a CNN reporter and. And you could see just kind of in the camera shot the, the microphone as the guy was explaining his situation. And, and as the reporter asked him, you know, tell us what happened. This man, who, you know, just an guy off the streets. Nonetheless, he, he began to talk as though he were a reporter, kind of flatly and objectively about what had happened to him and to his family. Well, the water came faster than we thought it would. So it came up to the the first floor, and we went to the second floor. And then it continued to rise very rapidly. So we went to the second floor and then to the attic. And then he said, and his voice caught, and then, if we had not kicked out the roof, my whole family would have drowned. I've never seen it happen. I watched, I watched the arm of the reporter come into the camera view as she began to pat him on the shoulder to comfort him. But what he said was this. We were going to die. And suddenly reality, we were saved. We were taken from the flood. We were taken from the mire. We thought we were going to lose our lives, but we were saved. And it gripped him, it gripped his throat. And the apostle is saying to us something Don't you realize you were destined for an eternity in hell? And your God, by the blood of His Son, reached from heaven and He grabbed you from the mire, from the darkness and the suffering, and He saved you, not by your goodness but by His amazing grace. And now you are at rest in Him and you are secure from the wrath of God and when He comes in glory, it's going to be yours. Now you think on this. Now you let this grab you. This, this is to actually be such, such a power in your heart that it becomes something of daily meditation and thought and a reality that is just Gripping. It has to grip you for the final imperative that is to come. Verse 5. If you really have set your minds on things that are above, then verse 5 put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You have been called out of darkness. You have been called out of the mire. You have been saved from death. If that's who you are, then put to death whatever is trying to draw you back. Recognize the heinousness and the horror of what you were in and don't go back there. What were you in? Put to death what is in you, sexual immorality, which in this line of descriptions is kind of the umbrella term. Sexual immorality, and then the, the what leads to it? Impurity, the you know the, the, the compromising conversation or entertainment, which leads to passion, a, a growing desire for those things, which leads to evil desire. Now it's actually got a character. It's 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 sin. It's evil in you, and that leads to covetousness, the actual seeking after the thing that you say will make you happy, even though it's not of God, which makes it, of course idolatry because you're worshiping it as your source of happiness rather than god himself and the apostle says if that's what you are after don't you recognize verse six on account of these the wrath of god is coming now we have to be good bible scholars Okay. The apostle is not threatening these people who are believers. He's already said what? They are seated in heavenly places. They are united to Christ. They are secure. But he says this. Listen, the wrath of God is coming upon the world because of these sins. Why would you think that you could dabble in that, play in that world again, and it would not touch you, not touch your family, if the wrath of God is coming upon the rest of humanity for this evil? Why would you think that you can dabble in that and be unscathed And so the God who has said he loves you enough to make you eternally secure is at the same moment warning you in practical terms of the reality of playing with sin. Don't you recognize this could be such damage to you, to your family, to your loved ones, to those of you who are responsible? And so he says in plain terms, put to death. It's, It's almost euphemistically that way. It's just the Greek for kill it. You identify what is threatening to you, to your people, to your spiritual health, and you kill it. Because it's trying to do damage to you, men. Right. It is trying to do damage to you. There's the old account of the Puritan preacher who'd preached on the mortification of sin. And a man came up to him afterwards and said, Oh, pastor, yes, I know that there are these sins that we struggle with, and, and I, I confess to you that there are just a few cobwebs still in my life with which I struggle. What would you suggest I do for these few cobwebs that remain? And the pastor looked at him a few cobwebs of sin, what to do? Kill the spider. Well, that's not what the man wanted to hear. Surely there is a a less radical procedure. No, says the apostle. Put to death. You kill it. This is not what you play with. This is not what you tickle with. This is this this is So damaging that you have to sense it's evil and it's true destructive power and kill it. How? How do we actually have the power to live these imperatives that our hearts set on Christ above want to follow? How do we actually gain power to put to death what is evil in us? The answers are not so easy always. The first is to recognize this will simply be a fight. I'm sorry. I I know we're supposed to preach grace to one another and it's all supposed to be easy. But I, I, I want you to recognize something. The apostle is writing to Christians. And all these key verbs are in the present tense. Get that? Seek the things that are above. Present tense. Set your minds on things that are above. Present tense. Verse 5 Put to death whatever's in your earthly nature. And that's in the present tense too. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher on the mortification of sin, said there are, there are typically two times at which believers think that they will no longer have to fight sin in their lives. He said the first time is when we make a vow in the midst of some great crisis, and God delivers us from the crisis, and in that moment we think the vow will be easy to keep. God, if you'll, if you'll give me the job, then I won't indulge in that anymore. God, if you'll rescue my family, I won't see her anymore. God, if you'll just keep my child from having to struggle with this illness, then God, I will give this... To In the midst of some great crisis, we cry out to God making some vow about overcoming some sin in our heart and lives. And when God delivers us, he says, then we begin to think to ourselves, wow, I'm so grateful. I'm so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that I actually desire to fulfill my vow. And in the sense of desire to fulfill the vow, we we actually want to overcome whatever sin we were combating by the vow. This will be easy. I now want to do this. The other time Owen said that we will believe we no longer have to fight a sin is when we have yielded to it completely. And now because we indulge the sin, it is repugnant even to us. I dived in deep and hard. And thank you, Lord, having gone so deeply into that sin, even I find it detestable now. Thank you, Lord, I am delivered. Owen says simply, the vow will grow old, and the temptation will renew. If ever you think you won't have to fight, you fool yourself. There is no temptation taking you but such as is, common to man. And you and I need to say, I mean, it's a men's conference, so we have to say to one another, you know, we, we sometimes think, oh, well, you know, whatever I'm wrestling with is just me. I mean, you know, everybody else has got it together. <laughs> no, no, we just don't show each other what we're struggling with. Oh, you struggle with that? Well, i oh, don't you treat me that way. There's no temptation taking me but such as is. There is no sin, the seeds of which are not in me. I I used to think in that verse, you know, there's no temptation taking it such as is common. That meant that, you know, somewhere out there, there's somebody who's struggling with what I'm struggling with. I don't believe that anymore. I now believe that everything I'm struggling with, everybody is struggling with. And what everybody is struggling with, the seeds of all of that are in me. There is no temptation taken us but such as is common. And the reason that we can be accountable to one another and honest with one another and open face about struggle is the reality is if anybody says, Well, I don't struggle with that, you say, You're lying. Amen. Because the Bible itself tells me if I'm guilty of one sin, how many am I actually guilty of? All of, all of them. They're connected, they're related. If people truly understand the nature of sin and of the Bible, they will understand that we all struggle. We all are, are dealing with ambition and lust and anger and unforgiveness and fear and anxiety. We're all struggling with it. And the reality of that means that, that I'm going to have to fight and you're going to have to fight and, and we're probably not going to reach a place this side of heaven where the temptations will not be reaching for us. Yes, we meet levels of victory and, and yes, God means for us to... But to say that the temptation itself has no effect upon us, would not be to understand the nature of Scripture itself. We're going to have to fight. And if you don't know that, you let down your guard. You know, if if you're not willing to fight, you, you, you don't recognize how vulnerable you are. It's the reality of it's going to be a fight that keeps us in the Scriptures and with believers and in our prayers to say, I need to keep my guard up. Because this truly is a fight. But having said it's a fight, how do we fight? Our other source of power is not just recognizing that we're in a fight, but that we have faith. Faith that actually is empowering. I I said this to you before, but I want to come back to it. Christ is your life. The risen Jesus is, is on your side and in yourself. And the notion that the power of Christ is yours is to give you the notion that, yes, victory really is possible. And and this is what happens. Satan comes to us and he says, you can't stop this, you can't help this. And faith says, that is a lie. Some of you, you know, have had the seminary background where you actually remember what's the difference between the unregenerate person and the regenerated person. What does it actually mean to be a new creature in Christ Jesus? And we use those fancy terms, right? There was a time in which we were non pose, non vocari. What's that mean, Brian? No, uh, <laughs> that we were not able, what? Not to sin. That's the unregenerate... We were not able not to sin. But praise God by virtue that he that's greater in me than he that's in the world... We have a fundamentally different nature now in which we are able, by the work of the Holy Spirit, not to sin, not to deal with those things. I'm not saying perfectionism. I am saying what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, He is giving us power to overcome. And there's more and more to reveal in all of us. Let me agree to that, okay? But what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us, he is giving us power to overcome. And by faith, I claim that reality. I claim that power. I don't believe Satan when he says, you cannot overcome. Listen, if you do not believe you can overcome, you've already lost the battle. You say, why would I bother to fight if there could be no victory? By faith we say, I have the risen power of Jesus Christ and victory is possible. And when I say victory is really possible, that gives me hope, but it's power at the same time. I know I'm going to have to fight. At the same moment, I believe, because of what Scripture says, that victory is possible. If I believe that, if I believe that victory is possible, and I believe that I have the power of God to have victory, then what finally is going to compel me to fight for the victory that I might have? answer is love. You are raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and now Christ is your life. If that means that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus, then we begin to be filled with love too. And it's that love that actually becomes the power of the Christian life. I don't want to be schmaltzy and just sentimental, but I want you to hear the reality of this. What is the most powerful human motivation? It is love. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. Love is more powerful than fear. It is more powerful than guilt. It is the most powerful human motivation. And if we have set our minds on things above so that we see how great is God's love for us, then we begin to love him. Listen, what is the only, re- the only reason we've already studied today? Sin has no more dominion over you. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin. If that's true of you, why do we sin? You hear the question? If sin has no dominion over you, why do we sin? You know what the answer is? Because we love it. Now you think about it for a moment. If the sin did not attract you, it would have absolutely no power in your life. Is that true? If the sin did not attract you, it would have absolutely no power. So if the power of sin is your love for it, what is the way that we overcome love for sin? We replace it. it With what? A greater love. The words of the apostle, a surpassing love. What are the ways in which we gain a surpassing love? You are already raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God. You are dead but hidden with Christ in God. So that when he comes, despite all your frailty and flaws and weakness and sin, when he appears, you shall appear with him in glory. And the reality of his great love for you creates something in us. We love him because he first loved us. And Jesus said what the natural consequence would be. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commands you begin to get the spiritual process in mind because we have set our minds on the things above, our hearts begin to overflow, fill up, and then have this surpassing love for God that is driving out love for sin. And when love for sin begins to die, it doesn't have the same attraction. It doesn't have the same power. And what we actually have is the power of faith for the fight. Because our love for Christ has been ignited and empowering the walk of faith that we need to have. You're called to a fight. I'm called to a fight. Let's not kid ourselves. This, this is not easy? This is not easy. You, you are called to live for the risen Lord who is fighting back the forces of darkness. You are on that team. You are in that army. This is part of a fight to which we are called. But we fight out of what amazing grace has been ours that gives us love and ultimately power to fight for Him. Do you remember that movie a few years ago called Cinderella Man? Remember that? that, that there was this kind of washed up fighter who's working on the docks during the Depression. Just you know, trying to make it for his family. And then even the dock job dries up. So he re-enters the the ring. And and with this amazing set of circumstances, somehow James Braddock, this this washed-up fighter, gets a chance to fight for the world championship. I mean, it will make everything right for him, for his family. It's, 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 it's the hope that is ahead. There's, there's just one little problem. And that is a huge fighter who will be his opponent. Max Baer, who has already killed two men in the ring. And James Braddock has to fight for the championship against Max Baer. The night of the fight, Braddock is in the locker room and his managers are nervously preparing him. Everybody is scared to death. And almost at the last moment, Braddock's wife comes into the locker room. She's not supposed to be there. The managers try to back her away and she withers them with a look. You get out of my way. I'm going to talk to my husband. And she goes to him, looks him in the eye, and says these words. Now, James J. Braddock, you just remember who you are. You are the bulldog of Bergen and the pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope and the kid's hero. But most of all, James J. Braddock, you are the champion of my heart. Now you remember that and get out there and fight what did the Lord say to you? You are risen with Christ and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And though you are dead to this world, you are hidden with Christ and God, there is nothing eternal that will destroy you now. You are safe. And because you are that safe, And secure. When Christ comes in glory, you're going to share it with Him. (laughs) Now you just remember who you are. And get out there and fight. Because here's the reality. You are the champion of the heart of God. Christ is your life. And because of that, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. You are the champion of his heart. Remember that. And fight for him. Father, would you work in the men who are here that they being so overwhelmed by the goodness of the gospel would be strengthened for the fight to which you call them. I don't know what that is. In different men, it's... Dealing with family issues, with some it's dealing with pride issues, with some it's being temptation issues. I don't know what it will be. But I know none of us grows too old to have to fight. And yet, when we do, out of the reality of your grace toward us, you give us the joy that is our strength. So, fill us with that joy by the grace of the gospel, we pray, that we might be strong for Jesus